Well, good morning, everybody. Well, welcome to the conclusion of our series, The Official Guide to a Joy-Filled Life. I'm a little, I was going to say I'm a little bummed that the series is coming to an end, but we're on joy, so I shouldn't say that, should I? It's been a fun series. I love Philippians 4, and I, based on some of the feedback I've received from some of you, I think there's a growing appreciation for God's wisdom in these chapters, because we all want joy, don't we? Every one of us wants this day to be a day filled with joy, a, a passion, and a, an exuberance, and we want the next day, and every day, and that's what God wants. And so the Lord has provided for us a path, a guide through Philippians 4. And I'll just remind you real quickly, on the first week of the series, we discovered that the essence of joy, Christian joy that is, is our relationship with God. The God who made the universe, who came to planet earth and saved us through the cross of Christ, he can be known, he can be your very best friend. And those who find that friendship Find that joy. Week two, we we studied anxiety. Some of you recall I had a ladder here and I kind of modeled anxiety through that. And anxiety is the arch enemy of joy. You just can't find joy if you're all stressed out and worried. And we discovered that there's a way through prayer where you can come into the presence of God and hand your burdens to him in a supernatural, miraculous transaction that leaves you with the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. It's crazy peace. And that comes through this prayer, and that peace is necessary to open the door to joy. Last week, third week of the series, we looked at the importance of our thought life. Remember I talked about my golf game, and I can't control where the ball goes. And we have 10,000 thoughts every day, and we can, in fact, we have to control where our thoughts go. Remember, Paul said, think about these things, these glorious, God-honoring thoughts. That's where we need to direct our thoughts. And if you're passive in your thought life, (laughs) joy will escape you. But if you learn to control your thoughts, to manage your thoughts, steward your thoughts with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can enter into joy. And that brings us to our last week as we progress through Philippians 4. We come to the topic of contentment. You know, we have circumstances that are all over the place, good, bad. And we must find a consistency known as contentment if we're going to have lasting joy. You ready? So I wanted to start by directing your attention to this very, very powerful device. This is a thermostat. The thermostat is glorious, but it's also capable of creating a civil war within a home, is it not? You know, just to illustrate the differing opinions on how this should be utilized, it's kind of an interesting moment right now as the temperature outside is dropping. Some of you have already turned on your heat this year. Raise your hand, in fact, if you've turned on the heat so far this year. Yeah, yeah a bunch of wimps. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> raise your hand if you have not turned on your heat yet. All right, there's my kin. See, we're all differing on how it should be utilized. Uh, I, I used to, uh, before I got married, um, 
I, I used to crack my window in the middle of the winter of my bedroom window, loving it cold. And then I got married, and I was told that pra- practice will end. And so, <laughs> and so it's been a battle in, in my family. I, I, uh, I have... I have officially designated myself the supreme master of the thermostat, which means that I am in control of it. I, I mean, if, if they have, uh, the others in the family, have an opinion of how it should be set, they're free to submit that request, and I will consider it and make adjustments as I see fit. Though I self-identify uh, myself as the master of the thermostat, I have to confess, my family completely disregards my title and the authority that comes with it. And whenever they feel cold, they just walk over, make sure Dad's not looking, and, you know, make a quick change on it. Drives me crazy. Who turned the thermostat off, you know? And my son, Jake, he flicks it. You know, uh, Jake doesn't, you know, I don't have the patience to make a minor adjustment. So if I find it set at 95 degrees or 42, you know, that's usually a sign that Jake's done his flick of the thermostat. So I, I need to know if we're alone. Any of you had any relational family tension based on the thermostat? Anybody else? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, good. Good to know. I'm not alone. Well, as, as much as the thermostat may cause some tension... I want to celebrate with you that this is a great device. We praise God for the thermostat. Imagine with me just as you're reminded of what it does through the thermostat, with the help of the thermostat, when it's very miserable on the outside, it can be delightful on the inside, right? When the circumstances outside atmospherically are like bitter bone-chilling cold or on the other extreme, sweltering blistering hot. Thanks to the thermostat, we can be pleasant on the inside. You know what God's plan for us is to be like? It's to be thermostat people. God's desire for us is that we would live a life of inner pleasant tranquility even when the circumstances outside of our lives are crazy and awful and miserable. That's kind of what contentment is. I'm okay, even when things around me are not. Now, the problem is, rather than being like a thermostat, too many of us are more like a thermometer. A thermometer registers the environment. It reflects the environment, right? A thermostat regulates the inner temperature, regardless of the environment. A thermometer person is someone who just reacts and reflects and is just like what the circumstances are like. If things are really bad, they're doing really bad. If it's a bad day, look out, stay out of their way because they are irritable and crabby and miserable. If if it's going badly, they're maybe depressed. If it's going well, If it's pleasant circumstances, they're doing well. And so I would argue most people are thermometer people. We need to become thermostat people who regulate the environment, don't register the environment. Make sense? And that's what we're going for, and we're going to go after it with the help of the Apostle Paul. He 
was a thermostat person. In a world of roller coaster living, you know what I mean by roller coaster living? Every single one of us has good days and bad days, highs and lows. This week, is it going to be a good week or a bad week? You don't know. As Cub fans, we don't know. We'll find out, won't we? Good and bad. And that's the way it is. But God wants us to be unflappable, to have this inner soul consistency through the goods and the bads, the highs and the lows. And that's reflected as we look at Philippians 4, starting in verse 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, can I encourage you to read along with me the Bible in your seat back? You can find this passage on page 1000. 181, 1181, Philippians 4, 11, starting in the second half of verse 11. Paul says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, Paul says, and I know what it is to have plenty. Now, I've noticed that I put a little break here because Paul's about to restate what he just said, just slightly different language. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Interesting. Paul is a thermostat Christian. Look at this. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. There is a consistency and a a beautiful heart that I enjoy in the good and the bad. Circumstances may change. My emotional state doesn't. Paul says, I have learned how to say I'm okay with my lot in life, whether my lot is a good one or a bad one. Most people are looking over the other side of the fence saying, oh, I wish my life was like that. Then I'd be happy. Paul says, right the way my life is circumstantially. I'm good with it. That's amazing, isn't that? Well, let's continue. Paul, uh, he says, uh, I've, I've learned to be content when I don't have anything, when circumstances are tough. And I've learned to be content when I have a lot. Now, one would say that that makes sense that it's a struggle to be content in poverty when you don't have much. But saying that you've learned to be content when you have a lot, people would say, that's foolish to even say that. Rich people are all content. Some of the most miserable people I know are millionaires. And, and the reason is contentment is a struggle for those with little. Contentment's a struggle for those with a lot. Is it not? I think those with a lot, the reason they struggle is they've got a lot and they're still not satisfied. And so they're trying to figure out why what they've got is not bringing them happiness. And they conclude, I must need a little more. <laughs> Warren Buffett was once asked, how much is enough money? And he said, a little more than what you've got. And that's kind of how we are. We kind of assume that I just need a little more and then I would be happy. And that's a lie, isn't it? And so contentment is a battle for everyone. We're all disappointed with our lot in life in one way or another. Maybe the greatest challenge is for those who once had good circumstances, but now have relatively tough. Uh, Paul would seem to be one who's gone through that ups and downs and can relate to that. Those who once had a flourishing business and a big house and lost it all and are now in a more humble 
environment. Once someone who had great health and beauty, you know, and they've lost that health, that beauty, that transition may be the most difficult to be content. And yet Paul says, good, bad, or the transition from good to bad. I've learned the secret of being content. Isn't that great? Uh, I've learned. Let's point to that. This is encouraging because what does that imply? That implies that Paul once didn't know the secret. Paul wasn't always a thermostat Christian. He was once a thermometer. He was once freaking out, but he's now learned. He gained this knowledge. And that's encouraging for us because if you're a mess, if you're just a, a slave to your circumstances, Paul was once there too. And as he learned and grew, so can you. Sound good? I love the word, the secret. Uh, when Paul refers to this as a secret, he's, he's like using some evocative language here. He's saying, hey, listen, most don't know this. This knowledge of how you can find unflappable contentment is not commonly understood, but I've found it, and I'm about to share it with you. And this, this what we're given here in this text is precious I mean, gold, if you can genuinely come to a place where you can live through life and the future is going to be a roller coaster and you can say, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do well through it all. How much is that worth? Wow. Paul says it's a secret and I'm about to give it to you. The next word I want to look at with you is, is the word content. It's found twice here. And the word content, I honestly didn't know this until this week when I studied, and I was so excited by my discovery. The word content is uh, actually the Greek word uh, autarkes. Autarkes is the word, and extremely uncommon biblically. In fact, this is the only place, our passage is the only place in all the Bible that autarkes is used. And it's just really rare. Now, It's rare for the Bible, but it's not rare for the Philippian culture. The number one philosophy in Greece at the days of the Philippians was um, Stoicism. And and this was a word that the Stoics absolutely loved. They loved autarkes. It was their concept. Stoics prided themselves in being self-sufficient. They said, it's like I'm in a bubble, a protective bubble. It's my little bubble, and nothing can affect me. Circumstances come, circumstances go. They're good, they're bad, doesn't matter. I'm self-sufficient. And Paul, interestingly enough, borrows this term from the Stoic philosophy, and he says, you know, I like this about the Stoics. Now, he's going to point to very significant differences in the Stoic understanding of contentment and the Christian understanding, but there's something beautiful about this consistency. The founder of Stoicism was a guy by the name of Zeno. Zeno, uh, he was actually not Greek originally. He was from modern Syria, was going across the Mediterranean Sea on a voyage when the ship that he was on got in a storm and was shipwrecked. And he landed up in Athens, Greece, stranded. And didn't have enough money to go on, so he just kind of said, all right, well, I guess this is my new home. And the people looked at him and how well he survived this tragedy. And they're like, wait, this guy lost his family and friends. They're still back in Syria. 
He's lost his money. He lost his culture, lost his homeland, and he's doing okay. And they were so impressed by his emotional resiliency that they said, teach us. And he started teaching how to be a stoic. And as a result, it just boomed in popularity, and it was huge. And, and Paul says, you know, let's be honest. The Stoics are onto something. Do we want to be all over the place emotionally? No. We want a sweet consistency in our hearts, even in this crazy world we live. But Paul says, but Christian, Sto- Christian contentment, very different than the Stoic understanding. And that difference is made clear in the next verse. So the next verse, Paul gives the secret. Here it is. Maybe you know this verse. Maybe you love it already. Philippians 4.13. Paul says, I can do all this. You wonder how I can do this contentment and everything? Here's how. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That him is a reference to Jesus. Through Christ, Paul says, I can find this contentment. Now, here's where that through him is such a big deal. The reason it's such a big deal is because the Stoics said, no, we don't, we don't need anything. We're, we're, we're desireless. To Paul, he said, no, I have a burning desire, and that is to be connected to Jesus, to have my life linked to him. In fact, Paul says, my only hope is in him, through him. Let me make the contrast with, in the form of an outline. I want to point to three differences between the Stoic understanding of contentment and the Christian. Here's the first. It has to do with desire. Uh, Paul said, I desire Christ. I have to be in him. If I don't have him, I don't have contentment. The Stoic says, I desire nothing. That was their Big deal. The Stoics said, listen, life is so disappointing. If you don't desire anything, you can't be disappointed. Right? That was kind of their thought. What do you you long for, Mr. Stoic? Nothing. I just want nothing. And then maybe I can be consistent. When bad things come, it'll be all right, because I didn't want good things to come. You know? And they just want nothing. Uh, One of the commentators I I read said, the Stoic made his soul a desert and called it a paradise. (laughs) And that's how it is. The Stoic just says, since the world is so disappointing, desire nothing and you'll never be disappointed. The Christian acknowledges, you're right, the world is very disappointing. You want things and you don't get them. Or you get them and they're not satisfying. In fact, the Christian says, there's only one thing that I have found to be satisfying, that you can count on, that you won't be disappointed by. And that's relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you want to know the key to my contentment? It's in him and my relationship with him. And Paul says, I long for only one thing, and that's Jesus. In fact, if we go back in Philippians to chapter 3, previous chapter, check out this verse. Philippians 3, 8 and 10. Paul Does he desire? Yes. Unlike the Stoics, Paul has one desire. He says, everything else in the world, it's worthless compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, I want to know Christ. 
Paul burned with a singular desire. He said, I used to be chasing after a whole bunch of other stuff, and it just disappointed. And so I've come to a singular passion, and that is my friendship with my maker, king, and savior. And Paul says, in him, I am finding satisfaction that cannot be destroyed. I've got a a dear friend of mine, a friend of Jen and I's from college, and a couple years ago she got cancer. And she's prayed passionately for God's healing, and so far God has not healed. She sought radiation treatment and chemotherapy. None of them have worked, and the doctors have kind of given up. And she said, well, if I'm going to die, she said, my greatest prayer is that somehow God sustains me until my two daughters graduate from high school. And yet she has got a robust passion for life. It boggles my mind. You know, I text her and we talk to her and get together. And there is just this enthusiasm where she says, I may not have many days, but these days are good because I've got Jesus Christ. I may not have a long life, but I've got a significant life because Christ is using me to advance his church and to reach lost people. And she has this resiliency emotionally that is mind-boggling. You say, how, how does she have it? Because she's obsessed with the one who doesn't disappoint. Her reason for living is her relationship with Christ. And she has that in abundance. It's a supernatural dynamic. She's got a strength coming to her from the Lord. In fact, that brings us to my next point. Let's go back to verse 13. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. The key to the Christian contentment is a strength, a miracle. My my friend, she's got a miracle of God's power functioning in her soul. It's not normal. It's causing people to go, wow, how are you doing well when everything is crumbling around you? It's a strength that the world knows not. And what's interesting is when you compare that to the power of the Stoic, well, let's go to the outline again. The, The power here is that the Stoic says you've got it all the power you need inside. Christian says, no, it's outside of me. The power I need is in Jesus. The the Stoic, remember I told you they're like in a bubble? They said, nothing affects me, nothing affects me. And the Stoic says, I got all I need within me. I am strong. And come storm, come hail, come bad circumstance, nothing will get me down. You know, they're really tough, Stoic. Let me warn you, tough Christian If you act like you're tough, you can handle it all, you're in danger. Self-reliance leads to great failure in the Christian life. As Christians, we are not tough. We are dependent. We are humbly and desperately clinging to a power outside of ourselves. Him who gives me strength, he is my confidence. And so when we look to future hardships that are going to come, yeah, my body's going to start breaking down one of these days. On that day, my confidence will be him and not my own resilience because I'm weak in and of myself. And so the Christian says, I desire one thing, and that's Jesus. 
The Christian says, I have one confidence, one power I rely on, and that's Jesus. It's not in me. It's outside of me. Brings us to the last thing, and that is the emotion involved. In, in the Stoic version of contentment, what did it look like emotionally versus the Christian version? It's interesting. The Stoic had no emotion at all. That was one of the goals, was to be flat emotionally. You know, we sometimes refer to someone as a Stoic, and that's kind of what we mean. They're just kind of apathetic, right? But they're proud of their flatness emotionally. They'd say, good times, blah. Bad times, blah. You know, I just never change emotionally. And we say, well, that's a goal. If that's what your goal is, to be flat and consistent, you know, bravo, you've achieved it. But as a Christian, we say, I'm shooting a little higher than that. I want to be consistent, but not consistently blah. I want to be consistently joyful. Remember the context of this passage is Philippians 4 where Paul's talking about joy. The crazy, audacious ambition of the Christian is to have a pervading sense of joy through the good and the bad. The Stoic Remember, poor Zeno, take a look. Here's what the emotional uh, you know, effect of, of the stoicism is. That, that'd be your face. I'm so proud of me. You know, I'm going to just be like this for the rest of my life. That's the stoic. And the Christian says, no. Come on, Mr. Stoic. Step into the joy that can be found in and only in Christ. Well, I wanted to share with you my effort at applying this passage this week in my life. I, some happened to me this week that helps. Some people say, Jeff, something always happens to you this week in order to do that. And that may seem like I'm uh, unique in that regard, but I would encourage you to recognize that we're all this way. If your eyes are open, you have opportunity each and every week to apply the biblical principles that we're studying together. That's just the way it is. This is not head in the clouds kind of stuff. This is down to earth, real life stuff, all right? I mentioned that circumstantially life is a roller coaster, ups and down. Well, this week was a roller coaster as it related to our minivan, started uh, last Sunday. My wife called me as she was coming home from church. And she said, uh, darling, the minivan is malfunctioning. It's, it's like sputtering and stopping and starting and really, really bad. Thankfully, she got back to the house safely. And I was like, doggone. You know, the minivan's only two years old and it's already breaking down. You know, so that's, that's bad. Brought it into the dealership, uh, the, the shop, to have it looked at on Monday morning. And the guy there told me, well, good news. You know, you're under warranty, so whatever it is will be fixed, free of charge. Well, that's good. And then he called me back, and he said, I got bad news. He says, we've found rodent droppings on your engine block in various places. So we suspect the problem is that a mouse has chewed through your wiring harness. And he said, that's not covered in the warranty, and so this is going to be on you. And he said, you should expect it to be around $1,000 to have it fixed. Called me back the next day, and he said, we took out the wiring harness. To our surprise, no rodent damage. Uh, we don't know what it is, but it'll be covered by warranty, and so it's going to be free. <laughs> I'm like, okay. 
called me back the next day. And he said, Mr. Griffin, we cannot figure out what's wrong with your minivan. We apologize. We're going to have to keep it another day. We keep looking, but it's a mystery to us as to why it's not functioning right. Called me back the next day, and he said, I have good news. We found the problem. We fixed the problem. Your minivan's ready to be picked up. No charge. Now, if I were a thermometer-type Christian, right, what would my week have been like? Emotionally, I would have been like, yay! <laughs> yay! <laughs> you know, and, and that's not the way I want to live. I will confess to you, much of my life has been lived this way. But I'm trying to put the Word of God into practice. Tried this week, and by God's grace and with the Holy Spirit's help, I had some victory being a thermostat. It was, uh, the first day I brought it in, the, struck up a conversation with the guy at the desk. Turns out he's a brand new Christian. He goes, I just was baptized a couple weeks ago. And I go, oh, pastor. We, you know, talked. And, and I knew he was watching me <laughs> throughout the week, you know, as he made the calls. He's like, how's this guy going to do, you know? And I had added motivation to, to do well. And with God's grace, I did. And with God's grace, I just said, you know, I don't obsess about my minivan and the costs associated. I obsess about my relationship with Christ. He loves me today. And I love him today. And we're tight today. And we're going to walk through this day together. And he will not disappoint, even when the van does. And I've discovered that about life, that when, you're, when your van is working, and when your van isn't, you've got Jesus. And when the rodents are leaving you alone, and when they're attacking, you've got Jesus. And when it's covered under warranty, and when it's not, you've got Jesus. And when they can figure out what the problem is, and when it's a mystery and they have no clue, you've got Jesus. And when he's our obsession, our desire, and our strength, there can be a supernatural contentment in good and bad days because that's not what we're about. We're about him, and he is good, and so are we. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for Paul's brilliant teaching. We recognize your hand all over it, God. You led him by the Spirit as he wrote Philippians 4, and we've been blessed by our study of it. God, let it not be concepts we think about and hear about. Let it be true of us. Let us live it. Please, God. Maybe we've been a thermometer person all our lives. Teach us to walk in what we just studied and to obsess about Jesus and to find in him a reason to rejoice even in the worst of days and make us joyful. Lord, for your glory and your reputation, give us a joy that lasts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.